Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to a brand new edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And right now I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Right now I'm going to be talking about the box office that happened this weekend, the results from DC fandom are now out, and a whole lot more. But the first thing I want to start out with is actually some heartwarming news that came out today, especially in light of what happened over the last few days in tragedy in the wake of Chadwick Boseman's death. And it has been announced earlier today that 42, really the film that kind of broke Chadwick Boseman into the spotlight, playing the late great Jackie Robinson, will be replaying back in cinemas over the next few weeks. And it'll be playing at AMC, Regal, Cinemark, and other theaters as well. There's a few draft houses, Alamo draft houses, that'll be playing 42. And I know for a fact, and it says in the article from Variety, where the news came from, that they will have, AMC rather, will have a discount price of $5 lining up with what they've been doing with their other additional classic films that have helped them kind of bring people back into the movies in which they brought back, funny enough, Black Panther, which also starred Chadwick Boseman for $5. They also had Back to the Future, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. And so they're adding that to their list of films to help bring people back into the theaters and to also honor Chadwick Boseman and other theater prices I'm not 100% sure on. And I'm sure they'll be announced at a later date. But I do think that it's nice in the fact that the theaters are recognizing the tremendous work of Chadwick Boseman. And again, like I said, honoring it with the first film that really kind of helped his career career shoot up into the spotlight and I actually watched 42 last night and I got really honestly choked up watching the movie especially the last 30 minutes or so just kind of seeing kind of full circle the the work and the impact that he himself Chadwick Boseman has had on a lot of people and again seeing the outpouring of support that he has had over the last few days has been really incredible to see and if you want to hear more of my thoughts on Chadwick Boseman you can check out my yesterday's edition that I had all about him talking about his life, his legacy, and and what he leaves behind. And again, just to kind of see that cinemas are honoring him in this way, it's incredible. I highly recommend 42. It really is an amazing film. Nothing that is kind of of earth-shattering, but it's a really good biopic that does a really good job in its handling of Jackie Robinson, and the main driving force is really Chadwick Boseman's performance in it, so I highly recommend watching it and checking it out, whether it's in theaters or if it's actually in on VOD, that you can actually go check it out, and definitely I recommend going to check out 42. What do you guys think about 42 playing in cinemas once again? Let me know and leave your thoughts. And now moving on to the box office recap this week. And it was really the first major box office weekend that we have had since theater shut down in the month of March when we had Bloodshot, I Still Believe, and when we had The Hunt come out. Those are the last three movies that had any kind of box office figures until theaters shut down, in which the last five to six months we really haven't had any anything in theaters because theaters have been shut down. And while drive-ins have been out and really have been the crux of any kind of business for the theatrical experience, there was nothing really kind of solidified and there were no major films to really report on. But this weekend, that all changed when you had the new 
Mutants come out. You had the second weekend domestically of the new Russell Crowe film Unhinged. And you also had the hybrid of Bill and Ted Face the Music, where that film was in about a little over a thousand theaters and it was also ready for premium video on demand. And the winner of the weekend, at least domestically, was New Mutants, coming in a little bit below expectations, even in the COVID environment, grossing $7 million this weekend for a total worldwide performance of $9.9 million. And the reason I say it's an underperform for COVID is with the circumstances that happened this weekend, a lot of prognosticators had New Mutants coming in with around $8 million, and it fell a million dollars short of that. And again, I think you when we look at the box office reports that are going to be coming in in the next few weeks and the next few months to come, we have to take it all kind of at face value for what we see it on. And really, we can't really sneeze at anything that comes out with these numbers. And the, the $7 million in New Mutants isn't anything to really sneeze at or isn't anything to really kind of glorify or really kind of heap any kind of really praise on. It did okay money. And if it was a COVID-less situation that we're in right now, it fell way below the expectations that were set upon it in early tracking numbers when it was set to make around $14 million when it was originally set to come out on April 3rd of this year. So it came in below those expectations, but it still came in below with the new COVID situation and implementations in effect. But again, I think just kind of seeing these numbers, again, nothing to really sneeze at, nothing to really praise, but nothing to completely disregard. It still gives a sign that people are at least still going out to the movies and that they feel comfortable enough to go to the movies even with COVID still happening and still around the environment for a lot of people right now, people still want to check out movies and at least go out to the movie theaters. So for New Mutants, again, nothing incredible, but at still at the same time, nothing to really scoff at. The big, really headline of this weekend was Tenet, and it's going to be the, the big headline moving forward again for the next month. And especially now that really there's nothing in September, it really clears the playing field for Tenet to have a long legs at the box office, especially in the fact that if people don't feel comfortable coming out when it opens this weekend here in the United States, then maybe over the next few weeks, if people do start feeling comfortable and see that maybe the that people aren't getting sick from going to the movie theaters, that maybe the safety implementations that AMC and other theaters are putting into play are actually effective. And if people are interested in seeing Christopher Nolan's Tenet and the word of mouth for it so far, the buzz has been pretty good. There's been some mixed reviews here and there, but for the most part, it sounds like even if you, if, if the, the plot or the characters aren't that good, if you want to go for spectacle for experience and get a bang for your buck, that's what you're going to get when you go see Christopher Nolan's Tenet. So if people start seeing that these implementations are working really well by mid-September, late September, before Wonder Woman 1984 comes out, then this could be a really good sign for for theater goers if those safety implementations hold up. But around the world, internationally, it seems like the payoff has really happened well for Warner Brothers as Tenet made $53.6 million internationally. Five million of that came from IMAX theaters. It launched in 41 international markets and the top prizes for the, the 
the international markets that came in in terms of its placing. Number one was Christopher Nolan's hometown in the UK, grossing $7 million. France, it made $6.7 million. Korea, even though they've had a little bit of an outbreak with COVID in terms of new cases arising, a surge rising, it still made $5.1 million, enough to come in at number three in terms of country rankings. And Germany came in with $4.2 million. And again, this is a really big number because where New Mutants underperformed in a lot of markets, Tenant overperformed in markets where a lot of prognosticators had it making around $40 million during the weekend and it made $10 million more than people thought it was going to. So that's a really good number and a really good indication that for all the drama that we had over the summertime of will Tenant open, will it not open, will it push to 2021, will it push to later in 2020 towards the wintertime, is it going to do a a global release where it releases in a handful of markets on whatever date that it was set to come out on, or are they going to approach it at a different angle? And when they finally came to the conclusion that other markets internationally were having a better handle on COVID than the United States, they decided to go more of a an, an old school rollout of saying these markets get it on this weekend, then this these few territories and these countries get it on this weekend, and so forth. And they do a slow rollout. And a lot of people were saying, Overall, that was the best way to really kind of go about at least doing this, whether it was a success or a failure, it seemed like the smartest route to really go in. And for Warner Brothers, it seems like it really did pay off dividends for them in that it really overperformed during its first weekend, its first major weekend. And to kind of see where it goes from here is going to be interesting because the big question is going to be how it performs in the United States in the in the states that are allowed for theaters to really go in. China has been a really big marketplace for Christopher Nolan movies over the last few years, specifically with Interstellar and Dunkirk. And then, of course, it comes out in Russia as well. So those are the three major markets that are opening up this weekend that could really be a big indicator of where Tenet goes from here and the kind of legs that it can have over the next month or so. And so this past weekend was a great indication of where these films can go from here. And the fact that also $5 million came from IMAX screenings is a really, really big number. And especially, again, for these circumstances is incredible. And for a Christopher Nolan film in its first weekend in the territories that it played in, it really kind of broke records in terms of these theaters not having a film like this come out in those kind of territories before, grossing over a million dollars that never really happened before. And these IMAX theaters also coming in and, and breaking records for the territories that they came out in. So it seems like the response for Tenet is really, really positive at this moment and people want to come out and see this film and if the guidelines support that and the the science supports that people are coming back safe and, and they are in pulling these safety measures very well and the managers and the workers are doing their part as well, then it seems like people do feel comfortable going out into the theater. So I think for Tenet, it's a great start for them, but the the, the work is yet to come. The hardest part is yet to come. And I think this weekend is going to be a big indication for, for where it can lead. And there was news that came out yesterday that New Jersey is going to open back up their theaters as well at 25% capacity, just like a lot of other theaters have been doing as well in other states so slowly but surely these theaters are opening back up again and i think for warner brothers they have to be really happy for where tenant has started out right now especially given the kind of summer they had and all the speculation and worry and controversy that they had in terms of tenant rolling out 
and being the first film back into theater. So Toby Emmerich, who's the chairman of Warner Brothers, is probably ecstatic, and he released a statement where you could kind of hear and, and see those words are ecstatic of a person that really was hinging a lot on this movie, and a lot still hinges on it. And there's going to be, again, questions, and this weekend is going to be crucial for, again, like I said, these last few weeks and this week is going to be crucial for the 2020 slate of movie going. And if Tenet continues this ride, and I'm not saying that Tenet has to make $50 million, $60 million to to do what it needs to do. And if it does that, then that would be a miracle story because that's right in line where a lot of Christopher Nolan films start out here domestically and then they acquire those long legs. So if Tenet at least makes half of what it made internationally last weekend, then I think Warner Brothers has to be really happy and confident that they think they can keep Wonder Woman 1984 on for October 2nd. They can, other studios can keep Candyman and the MCU and Disney can keep Soul and Black Widow on their release slate as well. Now, if they see that the tenant legs are actually going very well and that people, if they feel safe enough, are actually going to the theaters because they want to see this film. They want to get out for the theatrical experience. They want to get back to the movies. It's just about the safety implementations. And again, if both streets work the same ways, if consumers come in and they wear their masks socially distant and the workers actually do the work they need to of sanitizing the theaters, making sure that all, everything is, is surfaced off and cleaned off the best that they can do it as, then I think everybody will be happy. And I think the theaters will come back very, very well. And, and this could be the start of a really good comeback story. But again, small baby steps and the next baby step to come is this weekend when it comes actually on Thursday when Tenet opens slowly in cities worldwide and especially here in the United States. And it has free screenings going on right now in in the United States. So we're going to see the slowly what happens with Tenet over the next few weeks. But the next baby step is this weekend and what it does here in the United States and in China. And some of the other box office that I wanted to talk about was Unhinged, grossing another $2 million this weekend. It has $8 million domestically, $16 million worldwide. So there's some attention towards this. And I think for Solstice Studio, it's nothing great and nothing crazy to kind of revel, revel over. But I think for what they wanted this film to be, this first film from their studio, that they wanted to be the first film back out there, they had nothing to lose. I think it, it worked to the benefit for them. And I think it's just Unhinged will be a building block for what Tenant can be a launching pad off for. So I think Unhinged did the job it needed to. And it seems like people are enjoying what Unhinged is. It's nothing incredible. But if you like stupid, crazy fun and Russell Crowe just going bad shit crazy, then that's what you're going to get with Unhinged, it sounds like. So it seems like it's doing the job that it needs to do. And another big surprise that came out this weekend was the box office results for Bill and Ted Face the Music, which, again, like I said at the beginning, was a hybrid mix of playing in theaters and also playing in PVOD. And it grossed from theaters $1 million from over a thousand screenings. So that's a really good number for Bill and Ted. And especially when you take in the social distance factor, like you do with a lot of these movies that are coming in from the box office results, it's it's a good number. And especially the fact that people could have just went on online or or sat in their homes and watched it. A million dollars worth went to people going to to the theaters and seeing it. 
and a big factor in it. And I think the big story from the summertime will be the unsung hero of the theatrical experience, which is drive-in theaters. A big bulk of the money that came from these screenings were from drive-ins. And I think when you, again, talk about the story of movie going this year, drive-ins have have, had had kind of a resurgence over the last few months. And Bill and Ted is one of the major players that come to drive-ins. There's been a lot of IFC films that have come from there, a lot of classics, but Bill and Ted, New Mutants have kind of brought some new meat to the table for drive-ins and for people who don't want to go to indoor movie theaters, but want to go and enjoy a movie, a new movie together. They can do it socially distanced in their own car. They have families that they've been quarantining with that they don't have to worry about bumping in to one another and being in the same room as other people. So I think Bill and Ted is going to have a really, really excellent journey or adventure rather playing off the the first film's title at the box office and what it can really do. And we have no idea what the PVOD results are yet. And I'm sure we won't really know what actually will come about from those numbers, but it sounds like it did good this weekend and it was number one on iTunes. It was number one on Fandango now. So people are looking for new stuff to see and Bill and Ted got really good reviews, and I think people who were fans of the other two films with Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter will want to watch this movie. So I think this this is a really good start for Bill and Ted Face the Music and could be a really good example of, of a hybrid of a film being on PVOD but also playing in theaters, and I think Bill and Ted is a really good example of doing that. But that's it for the box office recap this weekend. What did you guys think about it? What did you think of Tenant making $53.6 million? Do you think that is a good launching off point for what it can do this weekend in the United States. How much do you think it's going to make in the United States and what it means going forward for the next month with really nothing in plain sight but Tenet to take over September? What did you guys think about that? New Mutants' weekend on Hinge's weekend? Let me know and leave your thoughts. And moving on from the box office to the DC Universe on Thursday, it was announced that the fandom had unreleased unre- their results for the viewership of DC fandom, and it was announced that there were 22 million views across 220 countries over its 24-hour run. It was trending on Twitter in 53 markets and on YouTube in 82 markets, and a lot of the trailers that came out from the Snyder Cut of Justice League, the Batman, Wonder Woman 1984, the behind-the-scenes look at the Suicide Squad were all trending across social media and on YouTube throughout the weekend of DC fandom and the days that came afterwards on Monday and Tuesday. And the the numbers are, they don't look as great, especially when you look at how many countries and territories it actually played in. 22 million views is good. And I think... When you look at this as an experiment, I think 22 million views is a, is a good number. And I think you have to look at this as not just uh, looking at the numbers, but looking at the experience that was had on DC Fandom and the fact that it literally took over the, the internet and the lives of so many people on that day. It felt like it consumed a lot of people's days of just talking about DC stuff from at least here on the East Coast from one in the afternoon to nine o'clock at night. And for people that maybe in other countries that were asleep during that time period, they had another 16 or so hours to watch this entire fandom really kind of kind of come to life and to kind of see all these incredible new details that I think the all the different angles that came into play with DC fandom worked really well. And I think this is going to kind of be a, a looking point into what 
comics comic-con can be in the future for what dc can do for what marvel could do down the line and that you can really just kind of have a day to yourself do something fun and exciting that get people kind of fired up and ready to go because dc fandom brought something that we hadn't really had in a, in a long long time at least during 2020 where you had exciting news you had new footage of films that are coming out in the next year or so that get people excited for the future and that there is a light at the end of the tunnel for this and i said that when at during my recap of dc fandom that i think this could be the start of something really 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 cool and that again it doesn't have to be all online but it could be a hybrid mix of something that is in a convention with people physically being there and something online as well so i think they they could fix up on a few things like you could definitely feel that the zoom the zoom callness to it and that other people were in different locations but they were able to kind of liven it up a little bit have it be in this excuse me this virtual dome that was appearing and all these cool different designs and it just felt like there was a lot more intricacy behind this than something like San Diego Comic-Con at home, which, again, you've got to commend them for trying, but it just didn't really live up to what we were expecting. And I also think, all due respect to everything that was a part of San Diego Comic-Con this year, virtually, there just wasn't a whole lot of hype and a whole lot of panels to really look forward to. There were some on the TV side and one or two on the movies with Bill and Ted and the New Mutants, but nothing that really blew your socks off that had people focusing in on it every single day and this was something that people there was a schedule to it which is why hall of heroes was such a great idea that they really did in the end split it up where everyone could just focus on these panels and look forward to them and not have to worry about jumping in and missing something they just had to stay right on the website of dc fandom and enjoy it so again the numbers might not speak to the value and to the impact that dc fandom had but i think it was a success for them i think 22 million views is still a good number but and i think that this is something that could really help them moving forward in the coming future what do you guys think about the results from dc fandom let me know and leave your thoughts below and the last major news story that i want to talk about today on the sam podcast is one that came out on entertainment weekly and it was really kind of the first look and first additional details for the brand new disney animated film raya and the last dragon which was set to come out in november of this year before covid happened but now it has been pushed to march of 2021 and ever since its first unveiling at d23 we haven't heard anything else really about it but that time has come and gone and we kind of are getting our first look our first image and the details regarding raya and the last dragon and it looks beautiful i mean there's only one snapshot of the the film and it's the first really kind of full cg rendition of the movie that they have all done waiting in the wings and it looks gorgeous and the the characters look lifelike and, and and it just all looks gorgeous like you would expect any disney animation film to look but the the greater details are in the the information about the characters and in the world and one of the other interesting aspects about this is that this is going to be one of disney's first major productions during the covid pandemic where they didn't really start 
creating this, doing voiceovers, the animation until the month of March. So they were right in the in the midst, in the beginning of this global pandemic that we were living in. And so they were really one of the first ones to kind of start from beginning to end during the lockdown phase. So everything that they did was from their own homes and not in any of the studios, including the voiceover. So I think that adds another intriguing factor to this movie is that it wasn't like a lot of other animated films really where you might be working in the studio and then the pandemic hit and then you have to pack up go home and work for home this was from beginning to end working from home so it, it just adds another level of intrigue for this movie but there's a whole lot of other details that came out of it you have the directors donna hall and carlos lopez estrada who also directed blind spotting are a part of this film and the the big news in terms of casting is that kelly marie tran will be taking over the role of the warrior Rhea taking the role from Cassie Steele who I don't know if something happened or if they wanted to do another casting call or if they wanted to change it up or maybe she had another obligation that she couldn't actually handle which we're seeing a lot of in terms of actors having to drop out of projects or back projects up because of shutdown of production they still might have some films that they have to do so that might have been what happened with with Cassie Steele but Kelly Marie Tran I think is a tremendous choice for this role because she is from the descent of Southeast Asia which is what the character is based off of and is really representing and the directors say that when they auditioned Kelly Marie Tran it they blew she blew them away in terms of kind of the the emotion the the complexity that she brought just from the voice to that character so to kind of hear them really kind of praise Kelly Marie Tran in that way it gets me really excited because I she has really gotten a bad rap for her role in the Star Wars franchise whether it's it's and it's not her fault at all I think it's just people didn't like the character of Rose I was one who she grew on me over the years and I just think she got a really bad rap in Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker where she was just really kind of put to the side and completely forgotten of when in the marketing it seemed like she would actually have a sustainable role so I think for Kelly Marie Tran this is a great opportunity for her to really kind of showcase her acting talent even if it's just through her voice acting that is a talent in and of itself as well so to hear the directors talk about Kelly Marie Tran in this way gets me really excited to kind of see her blossom into an actress that isn't just attached to the Star Wars franchise which is nothing to be ashamed about whatsoever it's great to be attached to that franchise it's it helps you in getting additional roles down the line but I think for her to kind of showcase that it just wasn't Star Wars that she is a great actress in and of herself is is really really important so I'm excited that the directors really love what she's bringing to the table and she talks about it how that that this is really important to her and it's important for representation for Southeast Asians and that Kelly Marie Chan is going to be the first Southeast Asian actress to lend her hand to a film like this for Disney Animations and their studios and that this is going to be a trailblazing moment like a lot of Disney animated films have been over the last few years and I think you're really starting to see Disney push a lot more of diversity within their films and representation, which especially in 2020 has been 
a big talking point for a lot of people over the last few months in the wake of George Floyd's murder. And I think in one of the big things that have come under fire is the representation in Hollywood. And Disney is kind of trying to get on that train right now. And we're seeing it happen in the Pixar world from what we're going to get with, with Coco and Soul this November. And then what they're doing next year with Luca setting it in, in Italy and, and showing the culture of, of the Italian world, I think is incredible. And Disney Animation Studio is doing that as well from what we got with Moana in 2016 and showing kind of a, a different world that people might not be accustomed to and showing the culture of that. And it seems like we're going to get that with with Ray and the Last Dragon and the directors and the writers talk about how they wanted it to be as authentic as possible so they can honor this the, the, the Southeastern Asian people and showcase this culture and showcase it in the most true natural way that they can within this world of mystics and dragons and warriors and they say about Ray is the fact that she's not just a princess but she's a warrior at heart. She's really first and foremost a warrior, a fighter, somebody who loves adventure and I I think over the years that is what we've gotten from disney princesses is they're not just pe- girls that are just kind of the dance dance and distresses and they're not just in these amazing dresses they actually have have value they they're they people that have speak their own minds and you see that the evolution through that animation with a lot of the disney princesses and i think we're going to kind of see that again happen with raya so th- this gets me excited to see what disney has down the pipeline and again seeing the future that disney has in all of their animation departments that they're really kind of going for that representation that they want they know that they can get a a multicultural demographic involved in these movies that they can make money with that and it's not just appealing to the same people over and over and over again you want to appeal to everybody that you possibly can whatever their ethnicity is their color is you want to appeal to everybody and i think disney is starting to get on that train and i'm excited to see where it leads them in the next decade and beyond what do you guys think about the raya and the last dragon and what it brings to the table let me know and leave your thoughts below hearing the details does it get you excited for raya and the last dragon and the last thing that I want to talk about today is getting back to the Nolan flashbacks that I started last week, and I want to continue as we get into Tenet, even though Tenet is already out in 41-plus markets around the world, and even though it is starting to hit here in the U.S. due to free screenings, the official release date for Tenet is still a few days away, so I want to get through all of these Nolan flashbacks, and hearing the reviews for Tenet, I think it's even more important to get an idea of what Christopher Nolan's filmography is as he leads into his 11th main installment in his resume. And the next two that I really want to talk about is one that is probably his his most influential and his most vital film to come out and what laid the groundwork for what we know Christopher Nolan to be today in terms of being a blockbuster director, somebody that when you go see his films, you go see it because of Christopher Nolan. And again, I always say that it all started with Inception as an original film of his, but when you go to point zero, ground zero, it all starts with The Dark Knight in 2008. And before that, Christopher Nolan was a name that we knew, but it was really kind of synonymous with Memento and specifically with Batman Begins. And he did such a really good job with, with that movie of telling the origin story of Batman in a really authentic way and in a fresh way that it got people really excited for what could come with The Dark Knight. And of course, the end tag 
in what was, I guess, the post-credit scene before the post-credit scene became really popular was kind of the hint that if there was a next movie, it would include the Joker. And Nolan has said, and I've read this in articles, that really he never really wanted to make a sequel to The Dark Knight. And in a lot of his movies, he leaves a lot of his adventures his stories open-ended for people to talk about so it was really a kind of thing for people to talk about that ending on the rooftop with gordon and batman looking at that joker card and just kind of people speculating on what it could be but as he was making the prestige nolan said that going back to the joker character it always came back to his mind and that he wanted to create a brand new joker character and, and discover the story of the joker and not make an origin story of him but to actually go into his psyche and what makes him tick and even though the dark knight trilogy is all about batman and the dark knight is batman you could really say that it is a co-led film between christian bale's batman and heath ledger's the joker as he shares just as much screen time and as just as impactful if not even more impactful in the dark knight and makes it one of the great films of all time and by many including myself the greatest superhero movie or comic book movie i should say of all time and what no one was able to do with the dark knight is what a lot of great sequels do is kind of build on the blocks that came before and evolve the characters while introducing new ones evolve the storylines and also add some more complexity to these characters and i think what makes the dark knight so great is it's not just a cookie cutter film it's not something that just has something on face value it has so many more different layers and meanings to it that make christopher nolan who he is when you watch films of his everything has subcontext to it and the dark knight is no exception as it talks about the lies and chaos and what makes a vigilante and kind of really kind of honing in on the comparison between batman and the Joker and how really they're two sides of the same coin where Batman is somebody who's a vigilante, but he fights for justice, whereas Joker is more of a vigilante in chaos where he just wants to see chaos ensue and, and kind of and, and show people kind of their dark sides and that really it's all about just kind of showcasing what a bad day can do to somebody and you see that happen with harvey dent who no one does a great job of showcasing one character's journey from beginning to end in the story of harvey dent where a lot of comic book films if they have future sequels in the works you might start off a character as one way and then leave off the next evolution of that character for another movie no one doesn't do that with harvey dent he encapsulates the entire story of harvey dent turning to two-face and the tragedy of harvey dent's kind of ascension to madness in one whole movie and it's all encapsulated by the relationship of of rachel who has such a big role in this movie and is delivered so so well from maggie gyllenhaal and all due respect to katie holmes who i haven't really seen in a lot of other things but she did an ant job in batman begins but maggie gyllenhaal just brought rachel to another great level in which she was on the same playing field as harvey dent as jim gordon as bruce wayne and is such a vital part of that storyline and of course the the action the the stunt sequences the, the visual spectacle it all really kind of came to a head for nolan and, and was kind of a launching point for him when you talk about 
about filming with IMAX cameras. You have the opening scene with the bank robbery that is reminiscent of Heat. And then, of course, you have that 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 chase scene where Joker's chasing Harvey Dent and Batman, and he's on the Batpod, and the truck flips over, and that was IMAX. And when you think about the iconic shots of that movie, the truck flipping over, and you see Wayne Tower in the background, that is kind of one of the big... Uh, the big centerpieces of that movie. So you kind of see the spectacle that Nolan brings to this film. And he does a great job of also making it standalone as possible, where it has, like I said, talking about that opening scene of of Heat and other great mob dramas from the past and kind of bringing it into this comic book world. And you can kind of really watch this film, other than maybe talking about the origins of Batman, you don't really have to have an idea of what... That these characters are from other films. You can just kind of watch this and go in with no idea of what is going on and still enjoy it from beginning to end. And Nolan also deals with the ideas of lies and of of what lies can do to you. And one of the things along with time that Nolan does throughout the rest of his filmography is kind of is is what do lies do to you? And I think a big example of that is in The Dark Knight towards the very end where the tragedy of Harvey Dent has befallen to them. Joker's plan has succeeded in turning Gotham's really white knight into really who he truly could be and that the white knight was an illusion and that there really was never a white knight and everybody falls from their high horse and that Harvey Dent becoming Two-Face was that but Batman and Gordon didn't want that to happen so they created a lie and what that lie can do to you and how that manifests within is kind of translated over into The Dark Knight Rises and The Dark Knight Rises is by no stretch of the imagination on the same level as even Batman Begins or The Dark night but i think nolan does a good job of kind of really finishing out his trilogy in a good way and showcasing what lies can do to you and how they can really kind of of fall and they don't really have any kind of weight underneath it that it just kind of falls straight through if it's realized what that lie could really truly be and how much of a mirage it really is and the dark knight rises i think does an incredible incredible job of showcasing that and offering up something different while closing out the trilogy in an okay way i think if there's one thing to say about the dark knight rises and the trilogy as a whole is that there was some kind of clear indication of where they wanted to go and again nolan never really likes doing trilogies he's said that it's been known that if you know christopher nolan he doesn't like to do things in whole trilogies which is why a lot of his films are standalone and when you talk about batman begins in the dark knight you can really look at them as their own standalone films but this film really had to be a wrap-up for all the previous two films to come I think Nolan did a good job of really kind of harkening back to the first Batman, Batman Begins at least, and about symbols. And the Batman is a symbol. He's not just a person. And I think what he shows is that doing a good job of closing out a a trilogy. And, And I think The Dark Knight Rises has some great action sequences, some great... IMAX sequences, and again, it goes for that scope and scale, but it isn't on the same part as the other first two Batman movies that he made, but I think it closes the trilogy out on a nice note, and if you were to look at the bottom half of Nolan's filmography and were to rank them, I think you would find The Dark Knight Rises on that list, but I think for The Dark Knight, though, it really was a launching off point for Nolan for what we know him to be today. 
as, and I say ground zero because it had the critical acclaim. People really knew who Nolan B was after that because they credited, you had Heath Ledger who really stole the show and was a staple for that movie. But the next one really was Christopher Nolan and what he did with that movie and how he revolutionized the comic book genre for the future and allowing it to be more grounded and gritty. And even though it isn't so gritty, it's more kind of hyper uh, hyper aware and, and, and more sensationalized and it feels a lot more kind of higher class than something like a Batman Begins does. It definitely had a little bit more that you, if thing, these things felt kind of real in a way. And the Joker could have been somebody and the Batman technology could have been part of military spec ops that could have been around at that time period. So I think with what Nolan did too is he created a blockbuster in which Batman Begins made money. It made okay money for that time period. But The Dark Knight was the conversation of 2008. It revolutionized what comic book films can be. It revolutionized villains, what a villain can be and what a villain can represent and how complex a villain can be. Same thing with a hero and the the way that IMAX is used in a movie and also changed the game for the Academy Awards in which everyone always thought that The Dark Knight should have been a part of that five best picture race and should have been one of those five films that were up for the Academy Awards in 2008. But because of the of the limit of number of films that can be a part of that nomination slate, it wasn't a part of it. And people really, were, there was an outcry for that because of how great the film really was, not just because it's a superhero film, a comic book film, but overall it was just a great, great movie. And because of that, the next year you found that the best picture list went from one to five to one to 10. And that effect that is still being felt today is because of what the Dark Knight really did and what it represented. So the Dark Knight really became the ground zero launching off point for Nolan and what he did. And I think between the Dark Knight and Inception is how we got the Christopher Nolan that we know today. And I consider both of them to be masterpieces and they are two of my favorite films of all time. I think what he did with those two films is revolutionary for many years to come. They'll be taught in cinema history classes forever and ever. And what he did with The Dark Knight is just incredible. I remember being a little kid, seeing that film at least two or three times, loving every single minute of it, scared of the Joker, because I was scared of clowns. And I'm still scared of clowns, but at that age that I was at, I was just in wonderment of how great The Dark Knight was. And it it was just an incredible summer of movies that year, and it was all really highlighted and led by what we got with The Dark Knight. And this is in the same year that we got a film like Iron Man and, and the launch point of the MCU that it started out with in the beginning of that summer. But The Dark Knight really kind of was overshadowed everything else and became the conversation point, which won a, a pseudo Oscar for Heath Ledger and really kind of launched off for what we know cinema to be for the next 10 years, really. And and I think the, one of the launching off points for Nolan and for comic book movies is with The Dark Knight night and so that is it for the nolan flashback guys which out of these two is your favorite is it the dark knight or is it the dark knight rises and i'm pretty sure i have an idea of which one it is but i still want to put the question out there and see what you all think about it but with that guys that is going to be it 
for this edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out my channel for more content. You can check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, SoundCloud, and much more. Also, make sure to tune in on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And be sure to check out the other amazing shows that are on there, such as You Mad Bro, the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also, check out Goal-Driven Professionals, geared toward improving client relations, return on investment, and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services. Also, check out The Daily Grind, a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson, giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. Along the way, you can also check out these shows on the podcast solutions, such as Wrestle Addict Radio, Fretzelmania Podcast, and Midnight Showing. You can check these out and so much more on the website, ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com. Also on Facebook and Twitter at Real Ambiguous. And if you want to check out Canopy Treehouse, use the coupon code AMBIGUOUS. Also, when you have a chance, make sure to follow me on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Basel Samuel. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. Again, that's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. And on Facebook at Sam Bissell. Thank you guys again so much. And until next time, keep on screening. <laughs>